0: Our conlangers try to map an arm, or an paucialminuan, by a case calapaki, at
1: On Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. I'm joined over in Wisconsin by William Annis. Hello. And over in New Jersey by Mike Lentine. How are you doing? Yeah. So our listeners might notice that I sound different today. <laughs> um, so I actually... Um, I got a hold of some money and I bought a big boy microphone. Uh that nobody's paying me to say this, but I will say just really quickly, if you have like eighty to a hundred bucks to spend and you want a really good quality mic that you want to use for podcasting or for maybe making some uh audio samples, the what I have is the blue snowball. It's a great one. So anyway, that's all I'm gonna say about that, but it's 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 uh doing very well for me. Is it blue? It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is actually I got the uh the metallic colored one, but the it it has the word blue off, printed on it because that's basically the company that makes it. Mm. So, yeah, I think you could use it for the the color test where 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 um you could say, you know, say the color Say the say the the color that's printed on this, you know.
0: Mm. I know what you're talking about.
1: Yes, that's that's funny. <laughs> it is funny, isn't it? Um. So, how are you guys doing today? Doing well,
0: enjoying the nice warm weather.
2: I'm t- terrified of my nice warm weather because it's not supposed to be 80 degrees in March in Wisconsin. <laughs> this
1: happens. It's okay. It doesn't Um, happen very often. Hmm. Anyway, see, I had other announcements on in, in mind to talk about, but I forgot them. So let's just go into our main topic for today, which is ad positions. So, you know, some beginners might not know the, the term ad position. They might be more familiar with the term preposition but we we're going to say ad position because basically these are sort of particle like things that ha- are part of an adpositional phrase they're the head of a a phrase and if it's a a preposition comes at the start of the phrase a postposition would come at the end of the phrase and there's some more exotic types that we'll we'll mention a little bit later but Let's get through some of the basics and a little bit of sort of interesting things that you can do with ad positions before we get into that. So William, what, what do you have to say about ad positions here?
2: All sorts of things. This is another one of those topics where I'm like, Oh, it'll be really easy. And then I started making notes and it just kept <laughs> getting longer. Um, so the things that we call Prepositions. I mean, in some sense, we're, we have it easy because everyone listening to this are English speakers. So we don't have to get too theoretical. Um, and adpositions are just particle-like words that mark a bunch of different things. Uh, semantic role sometimes, uh, location, time marking, logical relationships, that sort of stuff. Um, uh, the, the walls people define an adposition as a particle that cannot occur on its own. Specifically meaning, you, I mean, in English it's a little tough. We can just say in, maybe in some circumstances, but most of the time you say in the box.
1: Okay. So they're, they're saying basically that it has to have a phrase that it attaches to.
2: Right. That's the test. Okay. So, in the Indo-European languages, like ancient Greek or Sanskrit, the test of a true uh, preposition is, can it be in a verb compound? Hmm. Okay. So, you have a bunch of things that are true prepositions that get used for everything, and then you have other things that act like prepositions, especially if you're an English speaker, they sure look like prepositions. But if they can't form compounds, then they're actually usually by origin nouns. And we'll talk a little bit about that, like how do you create? prepositions historically as we move on and and i'm going to accidentally say prepositions that have add positions from time to time because except for maybe navajo uh, most of the languages i've studied just use prepositions Mm.
1: yeah well that's that's the case with me too although i have a little bit of ancillary um familiarity with japanese which gets me at least a little bit into the idea of post-position. And then
2: Mandarin, yeah. whatever it is that Mandarin does, which is weird. We can talk about that because it's interesting. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting theoretical problem in terms of what's the, the border between an ad position and case marking. Hmm. Um, um, in particular, once you get into cases of things like instrument or especially location, are these really cases or are these fossilized postpositions that have just become, or enclitic postpositions that have become glommed onto their nouns? And the, and the reason I mention this is because very often in these languages, the construction is transparent. Hmm.
1: Well, well, speaking of Japanese, they have that problem in that you can't, you can't really decipher whether their postpositions are postpositions or case markers.
2: Right, yeah. right um and it's a little bit muddled in finnish but some of the north caucasian languages like tsez which has an enormous array of location cases they're all easily decomposed this part says motion towards this part says above mhm and it's and, you know you don't have to memorize an entire chart you just memorize the parts and mix and match as appropriate mm-hmm. so i'm not going to talk about that too much just mention that as a possibility that that there's a little fluidity there so I, I know, for example, that Persian does not have case marking, but it does have a preposition that is used with definite direct objects. Okay. Which classical Hebrew at least also has. So looks like a preposition, acts like a preposition, but is marking what we would consider core case stuff. So I just want to mention the range of possibilities there. Okay. Um, and, and something I, that seems so obvious that I didn't even put it into the notes. Obviously, as we've said, adpositions go with noun phrases i go into the store you know i cooked rice with fish i went to the store with my grandmother right these these relationships that we're encoding go with noun phrases or or pronouns hmm. um and the reason i mention this is not all languages let you use add positions just on their own like we can in english in english i can say i went in Uh uh-huh yeah and effectively in in that sentence in is acting like an adverb i would say you know maybe some people would disagree and there are languages that will not let you do that you have to use a different word when you say something like i went in okay so and this is why the walls people say You know, an an, an apposition is something that has to go with a noun phrase or a pronoun substitute.
1: So when you say I went in, that's almost it's not the same thing, but it's very similar to uh, phrasal verbs, which use sort of the same forms as the prepositions, but they're not prepositions anymore. Uh, Right. I think so.
2: I mean, it's, it, in English, it's a little bit tough. There, definitely it's, it's a margin case. I'm trying to think of,
1: um. But when you say, I went in, could you think that it's like an implied phrase? Like when uh, you say, I went in pragmatically, you mean I went in the house or something. Yeah.
2: No, like I said, this but is I, a difficult.
1: Yeah it's, it's a, yeah. it's a difficult thing to, to deal with. It may be, maybe that's one of those things that. When you're conlanging, you can definitely set this is the way that this is working, even though in natural languages, it's often very difficult to figure out exactly what's going on, really.
2: Yeah.
0: And then, uh, If I can comment on one thing, I think I remember from my linguistics class, um, our professor was telling us about a test you can do, and it was with um, if you can move the what you think is a prepositional phrase to the front. For example, I think if you say... I let the cat out of the bag. and I, I might be talking about the inc- the wrong test here, but that's one meaning. But if you move that out of the bag to the front of the t- sentence, it doesn't make sense. Out of the bag, I let, well, out of the bag, I let the cat. It. I think that that would be a phrasal verb application of that out of the bag. Whereas right. if you say, I went out of the house, out of the house I went, I'm not sure if that's, that might be for um clause boundaries or something like that instead I'm thinking of.
1: That's weird. I would think that the, the, that cat out of the bag thing might be just telling that that's a set idiom or something.
0: Well, maybe, but if you say like, I turned off the light and then you say off the light I turned, that's not.
1: That's, that's true. That's, that's, that, that one definitely is. As opposed to,
2: as opposed to in the hotel I slept, sounds weird, but is not the same.
1: Well, yeah, that's, that's just topic fronting in that case. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's, that's
2: not the same dislocation. Anyway, the, the simple reason that I mention this is just to raise it as a possibility for people who creating their languages. And in ancient Greek, I went in is an impossibility. Mm-hmm. You must either create a compound verb or you have to use a special adverb form of the preposition.
1: So, so you can say things like I in went. Well, sure.
2: Enter. Right.
1: Oh, I, I entered that uh, obviously. Yeah. Okay. That that that's an interesting thing to bring up. Um, um. What? I'm sorry. Okay. What well, what what were you going to say?
0: Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just going to make one more comment about um, when you say like you know I went in. I don't know if that's also maybe just like uh if there's a trace there or if it's just not mentioned. Similar to saying you know that's mom's when you're saying like whose computer is this? Oh, that's mom's. It's not saying that there's nothing being referenced there. It's just that it's not spoken. It's yeah. Not I was kind yeah. of
1: trying to get at that. But, you know, it, the, the, these are theoretical issues that we're not going to, that we're not going to really, uh, answer on the podcast. And I don't
2: know how far these go in aiding conlanging. So. Well, I just want to raise this as a possibility. You might decide, as I have in one or two of my languages, that ad you know, adpositions must be adverbialized when they take no overt object.
1: Yeah, that part of it is helpful for conlang that you have what these like three different options, uh, that you can do what the, the ad positions can be used on their own, whether they have to be adverbialized, whether they ha- have to be, uh, stuck onto the verb as a compound. Right. Or all the combination of the three. Um, why don't we move on? You also put in the notes here, William. Add positions plus case. This is something that I've actually used in IA Rio a little, probably not as, as well as it's been used in other things. I've seen, I've seen other uses of it and I've seen, and I've heard of Natlang uses of it that are a little bit more systematic than I actually do. But, um, why don't we talk about Mike? One of your specialties, Russian does this, doesn't
0: it? Yeah. I... I took a couple of years of Russian back in college, and Russian definitely has case and definitely uses it with its prepositions, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun for people to learn.
1: Now, is Russian one of the ones where basically the 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 meaning of the preposition can change based on what case the the noun it modifies is on?
0: Not for all of them, but there are definitely I, I can think of one at least where if you use one case with a preposition, it means one thing, and if you use a different case, it means another. Um, The example is, it's just the sound s. And if you use it with the genitive case, it means from, like, coming down from somewhere. But if you use it with the instrumental case, it means with like accompanying something. So if you say um, sam noi, that would be an example of the instrumental, like, he walked with me. And if you said Sa, uh, what do you think? Sa, I think it's Samanya, yeah, or uh, Samanya, I believe, or Samanya, yeah, Samanya. That means like it came down from me, like an origin kind of marking on there.
1: Um, William, you've mentioned before that uh, ancient Greek does this and Latin does this. Are the is this like mostly an uh, a European thing, or does it happen in other languages?
2: I don't know. And that's actually because I know I see this mostly in Indo European languages where the adposition marks a relationship and the case choice either is used to develop new senses of that adposition or in the case of Greek and Latin, your choice case often indicates motion or location. Yeah, that's what you were mentioning with. So I'm trying to think of one that can be used with all three. Hmm. Well, the point is, if you use something with the dative, that indicates location with no motion. If you use the genitive, that means motion away from. And if you use the accusative, that means motion towards. Yeah.
1: And we should say clearly, these are obviously NatLang examples that we're giving. These are just sort of cues as to what you can do. I think generally, dative and genitive... Are most commonly used with the, the, uh, the, with adpositions to make some different meanings. I've heard that there are languages that have a special prepositional case just for objects of prepositions.
0: Russian actually uses the locative case or prepositional case.
1: Yeah, locative, I think, is another one that seems to, to, to get attached with prepositions
2: a lot, so. Um, I, I gather Finnish, I think, uses the partitive mostly with mm-hmm. their prepositions, mm-hmm. which is a, a funny choice. Um, I'm spending a, a moment here trying to figure out what Turkish does, just because Turkish I know has cases, and I wonder how they interact.
0: Um, earlier, I think, George, you men- I think it was uh, George, you mentioned that um, some other languages use prepositions for what might be used as case in English or in other languages. I think English uses two in that sense, like when you say, I gave the book to mom in Russian, for example, there would be dative case. You wouldn't use a prepositional phrase for to mom or to whom you gave the, the book or the
2: right. cake. Right. Oh, that's right.
1: true. The, yeah. Um, English too is a, is, is a, a weird thing because you can, um, you can actually construct a well-formed sentence that doesn't use to, but you use word order. I gave mom the book but you also have two doing being like halfway uh, a preposition and a halfway a dative marker so it's kind of interesting there i think that might come from maybe
0: if you take the more latinate type of st- construction or the more germanic type i'm not sure what german does i know german has cases yeah. but i know in spanish there's at least like the a personal like yo vi el libro a mamá or you know i gave the book to mom so i don't know if that two construction is more romance um, oh,
2: I think only Spanish does that, and that's related um, to animacy, as I recall.
1: Yeah, um, Spanish has a uh, has a weird thing. They also have an alternate construction, but that you don't need prepositions for, but where you are using the, uh, what is it, like the enclitic forms that oh, come like before silozy. the verb? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's that's a that 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 gets into some very weird things and you know sometimes you get into little weird in between areas when you're working with any of these big categories like adpositions and stuff mm-hmm.
0: um uh, i just thought of another example um english uses the of to represent the da- the genitive like sometimes. this is the, yeah sometimes also the apostrophe s can kind of take over for that but another example mm-hmm.
1: yeah you have of, and the the apostrophe S clitic, both of those are genitive. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's sort of... And that's actually something that you should consider when you are doing your conlang, is when you're working on ad positions and maybe thinking about things that ad positions and cases and other things can mark, remember that natural languages often use multiple strategies. Often they have some ver- sort of slightly different circumstances attached to when they use them, but they're using multiple different strategies to mark something. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we kind of move on, because we've
2: talked a good bit on this ad positions and case thing. All right. So um, before we move on, I can say with certainty now that Turkish is like the Indo-European languages in that different prepositions take different cases. And oh. I, it, at the moment, I'm taking a quick look here, and I, I'm not sure that any case... <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, is left out of this dance of
1: okay. So it's not just an Indo-European no, thing. That's no. one thing I was going to ask because a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are of the kind of con language that want to avoid things that smack of the Indo-European. Yeah, area. they don't
2: want, want to do the standard Western European. Yeah, thing.
1: Anyway. but anyway, yeah. Let's let's move on to the next little mini topic here, which
2: mm-hmm. is. We've been spending all this time talking about <laughs> appositions, and it turns out some languages have none, or very, very few. Yeah. Yeah. And they encode everything quite differently. Um n- No big surprise, a bunch of these languages occur in the native United States and South America, where it all gets piled up on the verb somehow.
1: <laughs> I've been hearing, I had heard some people, I've seen some people on the board saying that, uh english possibly is unu- has an unusually large number of uh ad positions and that most languages don't have a whole lot in in the first place how many do they think english has um well that's a question because the the number of ad positions english cl- has is fuzzy
2: because we have a bunch of compound ad positions yeah, yeah, yeah. And well stuff. that that becomes interesting the reason i was mentioning that is while it's true we have a bunch of languages of native north america which encodes a bunch of things on the verb, um, and, you know, your location, and instrument, and all of those relationships just become arguments of the verb, which mm-hmm. has taken on a bunch of markers. Um, then you have a language like Navajo, and I think the rest of the Athabascan languages have lots and lots and lots of prepositions. Um, I didn't verify, I didn't go check my Navajo dictionary, but it either has 70 or 90 postpositions. Wow. Hmm. So that's quite a lot. Yeah. Um. What was I going to say? Right. Um. It's more usual for a language to have, if it's going to to not have the the flourishing collection of adpositions we're used to in European languages, to have a small set. Oh, okay. You know, like one for location, one for instrument and accompaniment, things like that. Hmm. Um. With everything else marked in different ways. Um, so it's very, very common in the languages of Mesoamerica to have a small number of true adpositions, and everything else is a noun, typically a body noun that is used to indicate location so rather than I'm standing beside my father, you say that you're standing at my father's rib. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And then then that rib then becomes the word for beside whether you're talking about a human being or a tree or a gecko.
1: Oh, okay. it doesn't matter
2: if it have rib, rib, real ribs or not, that's what that means. Mm.
1: You can you can have some interesting sort of derivations if you go on that route,
2: right? And some people argue that it's exactly these sorts of nouns of location or nouns hinting at these various other relationships that's going on in Nahuatl. We don't have to go into the details, but they sort of look like postpositions that are glommed onto the word. So and as you talked about before, how do we count how many of these there are in English is on top of a preposition. That's that's
1: a curious one, because you could analyze it as being a preposition that happens to be a compound, or you could have it be a nested prepositional phrase.
2: Yeah. Being used like an adverb, yeah. So, um, that's the point, and this is very, very, very common. Things that are nouns, or, or rather, nouns that relate to location, are very easily grabbed into service as things that look like prepositions. Mm-hmm. And any sort of noun can happen to this. So, in ancient Greek, there's this word karin, which is just the accusative of a word meaning, um, like favor or grace or things like that. And it also means that you do something on someone's behalf.
1: Mm. Okay. Right? Like a Just, benefactive?
2: Yeah, some something something like that. I mean it has a bunch mm-hmm. of uses, but yeah, that's it. So nouns can really be easily grabbed and turned into mm. things that sure act like adpositions and in English speakers will definitely say, Oh yes, that's a, a preposition.
1: Well, nouns can be grabbed, but um and you mentioned this in the notes Uh, Mandarin seems to grab a lot of verbs and use them as
2: prepositions. Absolutely, and that is a very Mm -hmm. common pattern in Southeast Asia.
1: Yeah, so you could, you could go either way.
2: Yeah. I'm I'm trying to, um... George, can you produce an example of the translation so people know what we mean when we say that? Like, so, if I go with you someplace, it's gun... Yeah, yeah, that's Whatever. right. Um, and and that just is a verb, ultimately originally meaning accompanying.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. gun gun means to follow, and then ni uh, the ni can mean I I'm going with you, or it can mean I me and you are going. So it's it's even it's even more complicated in that case. I think a cleaner example would be uh gay, where gay means to give, but it's also like a a dative. Uh, sort of preposition like
2: to, right? So, mm-hmm. so that those are those are two good examples of how verbs, especially in languages that are not highly inflected, <laughs> mostly mm-hmm. isolating languages, seem to prefer- favor this.
1: Yeah. Uh, Mike, were you going to say something? Well, I was going to just give
0: another example, like zai. Like, if you say, um, it can be used just as a clean maybe verbal preposition or just preposition. If you say, like, you know, zai... 我在工作, I'm at work. 在 being at, or to be at.
1: Yeah, 在 is the locative uh, copula and also at, basically, yeah. And
0: then um, there's you can use it also in verbal constructions um, to say, basically, a progressive aspect. So if you're doing something, I mean, I guess you could gloss it as I'm at swim or I'm at play, but I'm not sure if that's any relation or if that's just a convenient uh homo homomorphology as
1: a yeah. yeah. And um that that one gets very messy, yeah, but that also that's another thing. If you're having a language that has very little morphology and you have the opportunity for verbs to just change into uh ad positions, ad hoc, they can also change into other things like adverbs and uh auxiliary verbs and stuff. Sure, sure.
2: Um, so one of the things I want to mention, are, are we ready to move on to the next? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Sure. So especially with adpositions of location, you need to think about how you're going to encode motion if you're going to at all. Plenty of languages, just leave it to context for you to determine. Mm-hmm. But in English, for some of our prepositions, we do things like I am in the house versus I'm going into the house. Okay. In is location, into is motion, on is location, onto is motion towards the surface of something. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to mark that? Um, you might have a bunch of different prepositions, which is what English does on and onto. That's what, that's the choice. One of the choices, not be made, along with these sort of phrasal things. Um, You might use different cases if you have cases to indicate location and motion, as I've mentioned, um, Greek does. Latin does the same, except it doesn't um, distinguish any kind of motion. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Wait, that's not true. Um, Whether you have motion towards, motion away from, or location, not all languages encode all three. For example, some will have motion towards and location take the same form, whereas motion away from will be something else. And, you know, linguist write papers about all of the possibilities and, and the implications there. Um, Chinese does something completely insane <laughs> in that actual location is a noun that follows the phrase and then motion is encoded by either zai or tong or what's the other one? At, uh, tong from, towards. Uh, I forget what it
0: is. Is it Tao like arrive?
2: Yeah, 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 Dao. Sorry. So, you know, in the store basically means, you know, at store inside.
1: Yeah, um, uh, 在, oh, I forgot the word for store. You mean like,
0: <laughs> you mean like Guan?
1: Yeah, 在, um, or dian. Zai, depends on Well, 在, well, uh, yeah, 在店里, zai dian, zai dian so. Right. That's that's right. It's at store inside. That's uh we've talked about um Chinese location complexes before. They they get kind of really weird like also the the after bit can be a compound. Right. Um with a verb indicating the motion towards or away from.
2: Right. But the the point here is there are two ways you can interpret this. You can either say this is a circumposition <laughs> right? There's a part at the front at the front of the end. Or you can just say that the verb-like prepositions are encoding motion and then there's a noun phrase where the last element of that noun just happens to always encode location, like above, below, inside, outside, all of those.
1: Yeah, it gets it gets a little um, tricky how you want to analyze it. Not... And, and it.
2: It doesn't matter. I'm just mentioning these as possibilities that you can use in your own language.
1: Mm-hmm
2: where you can stick with a very small number of true prepositions and use nouns to do the rest of the heavy lifting.
1: Now, here's a question that I want to ask you, because I believe I read on walls something about in-positions that, like, are inside their their adpositional phrase. Have you heard of any language that actually uses those, or are they, like, some theoretical thing that somebody made up?
2: They are a common stylistic variant in both Latin and Greek.
1: Okay, so they do,
2: but it's important to know this is for a noun phrase. I'm I'm not talking about cramming things into the middle of a noun, not like infixes.
1: No, 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 not an infix,
2: but an in-position. They go into a phrase. Yeah. So instead of into the big store, you would say big into the store. Okay. All right. So how common are those exactly? They're not. I guess not very, because I know of no other language. I mean, obviously there are depending on how you count between six and seven thousand languages on the planet of which I've only seen the grammars for a few hundred, but I really only Greek and Latin are the only ones where this is a regular feature.
1: I suppose I should look at the walls and see if I can find it, but uh, don't have time for that now. Right. Anyway, that that's, that's one other thing you can think about, but I don't think it's uh, from what I remember, the walls were saying this was extremely rare. So, you know, if you don't want to bother with trying to figure out how to do that, then don't worry about it.
2: But, you right. know, that's another option. Um, uh, so I just want to talk a little bit about various kinds of morphology you might get for adpositions, however many of them you decide to have. Of course. We can have them independent words, meaning they can bear their own stress accent and they can come before or after prepositions, postpositions. Mm hmm. Okay. Um, and we have circumpositions. Um, some people argue that the English phrase from now on mm-hmm. is a kind of circumposition. Oh, the
1: from and the now on? The from and the
2: on. yeah, With mm-hmm. the on. thing squished in the, in the middle. Um, it is often common that these words do not get their own accent so they are um, either proclitic or enclitic mm-hmm. which means they have no accent and you can either write them as part of the word they go with or not as you see fit. Mm-hmm. Um... Um, they might behave differently with nouns and pronouns. And this okay. is quite common in lots of languages. So, like, Celtic languages do this, Semitic languages do this, the Athabascan languages do this, where they're independent with nouns, but when they combine with pronouns, you get a glom together form. Okay. Um, the Celtic languages are notorious for having big charts of irregular, essentially, preposition conjugations you have to memorize. Oh,
1: I, I, I can think of one example of this happening in a romance language in Spanish, uh, with con becomes conmigo. Yes,
2: right. And, yeah. and that's the, the sim, the sole example of that, I think, in Spanish.
1: Yeah, it's, that's, that's, it, it's not a regular process in Spanish. In, in Celtic, it's more, it's, it happens more to more things. To all of them. To all of them. Note yeah. here, that sounds difficult.
2: <laughs> um, there are patterns, so I'm making it sound a little bit worse than it is, but some of them are a little bit irregular, as you would expect over time. Uh, the ones in the Semitic languages are pretty easy, are pretty um, analytical. You can usually tell them apart, although the ones in Coptic can be weird. Um, in the case of Navajo, all postpositions are attached to—they're um, always a suffix on a pronoun form. Okay. So you you can't say. I'm I'm trying to think of an example. So my mom is Shima, and I can't say with my mom. I have to say my mom with her. So Shima bih, where bih means with, and the or rather the bit means her, and the ith means with. So you you know you say I went um, the store into it.
1: So, is it really so much? That it is a compound or more that the postposition is encoding everything that goes on to pronouns, whatever person and number and stuff.
2: Uh, I'm not trying to understand the distinction you're making.
1: Well, I'm just thinking well, I guess it's the same thing, isn't it?
0: Yeah. It might be six of one half dozen or another.
2: Yeah, I I think that's right. I think there's there there a theoretician somewhere might care. I don't. Yeah.
1: I mean, what I'm saying is, you could have, uh, a, an alternate way of doing this where the, um, the, 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 um, ad position actually has some sort of agreement on it, even though that may or may not be what's going on here. It's, it may just be just a compound.
2: Yeah, it's not really agreement because there isn't gender. It would be interesting to know if there are languages where that would matter. Mm-hmm. Where, like, the man, with him or the woman with her w- would be different. And that'd be more interesting if it were like the duck and the toothpick, if those required different <laughs> pronouns with their preposition. <laughs> right? Obviously, man and woman are, are special cases. Anyway, uh-huh. right? so I'm just mentioning this. All of these relationships that we're used to thinking of, with, above, on, I love Navajo has a special apposition that just means under the blankets with.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey they if they need it yes yeah, that's that's, right. that's 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 very useful in
2: your senator examples, yes, yes, in my <laughs> senator examples, yes, he was under that, yeah, um, uh, Arizona, winters can be cold, um, but all of these things that we're used to thinking of as having prepositions, postpositions are these phrases you know, I went, I'm trying to think, well, whatever, um, the man with him is is how that's always has to be said. Um, your language might have a bunch of independent prepositions, but a few that are enclitics or postclitics. So most of the Semitic languages have independent pronouns, but there are two or three that are always effectively prefixes. By pronouns, do you mean prepositions? I do mean prepositions. Sorry.
0: Okay. Or adpositions.
2: I'm yeah, adpositions. Sure it is. Um, in the Semitic languages, they usually come before. But yeah. Um. So um to with and like are the candidates in most of the semitic languages that are prefixes and then the other things are independent words
0: i'm sorry you said like how would like be similar
2: similar to oh okay to. okay i thought yeah. yeah um what was i going to say um if you have nouns turning into prepositions they might act weird mm-hmm. so you might have a normally prepositional language but these oddball nouns might act like postpositions cuz really they're just things and part of a noun phrase ultimately so i'm just mentioning that as as different kinds of mix and match so that you do not have a 100% perfectly regular system of prepositions
0: now i have a quick question um regarding the prefixing and this might be a question that you've already answered before but um is it just the orthography that determines whether it's a preposition or um is it something in the way you pronounce it cuz i know in russian you said um, to and with. In Russian, for example, the word for with is just... Tss, right. But it's written as a separate word. So where's that line?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a choice you get to make when you're creating mm-hmm. your own language. Right. If the word can bear its own stress accent, then I would be inclined to write it separately. Mm-hmm. But if it's a proclitic, you know, it could go either way. Do you write it with it or do you write it not with it?
1: And talking about natural languages, there's a whole bunch of, you know, different... Very fuzzy little things where you have to test about whether, what, what, about what kind of thing it is. But when you're creating a conlang, you can just kind of decide whether you're going to write it this way and what you're going to describe it as.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. And it presents interesting problems for, especially our manuscripts of Homeric Greek. Mm -hmm. They were confused all the time about their prepositions is this part of the following word is it not part of the following word and it sort of keeps editors busy making argumentation for or against <laughs> well there we go right because most of them were proclitic they had no accent of their own except in the weird cases where they could be used as postpositions, and they sort of magically produced their own accent um yeah we don't need to go into that um Is there anything else about the morphology we need to talk about? I mean, we've not gone into great detail. I'm just mentioning the big possibilities. I assume people can figure out on their own if they're doing. Well, I suppose it's worth mentioning (laughs) that if you have an SOV language, Mm -hmm. the likelihood that you're going to have postpositions is pretty high. And if you have SVO or VSO, then the likelihood is very high that you're going to have prepositions. Yeah, it's...
1: What? It's related to the, just the, 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 um, the position of the verb and object, whether you have it,
2: but you don't have to have it that way. No, you don't have to. I'm just saying that it is much more likely.
1: It's a, it's, this, this is a general tendency. This is, it's into the, the, the big linguistic, uh, category of, uh, head initial and head final, which I don't think we really want to talk about here. That was our
2: typology episode. Yeah, if you, if you if you
1: talk if you download our typology episode, we we're there I'm sure that we mentioned it there. I haven't listened to it recently, but I'm sure that's episode 6, isn't it? I have no but, idea. But uh that's yeah. True. But yeah, basically for the purpose of this one, yeah, what William was saying is true. Basically, if you have the object comes before the verb, then you're more likely to have postpositions if it, come, if it comes after the verb. You're more likely to have prepositions. <laughs> um, what else can we really say then? Um, did you mention this note? You said nouns that are turned into prepositions can have odd syntax. That's yeah, what I, I was just saying. Things? They they
2: might be postpositions in an otherwise prepositional. Oh, language.
1: okay. I I must have kind of spaced out a little bit. Uh, <laughs> you have some notes about syntax. With prepositional phrases here.
2: Nothing really big. It's just questions that the language designer should answer. Uh Uh-huh. First of all, do you have a special verb for predicate prepositional phrases? Mm Mm-hmm. In English, I can say, I am in the house. I am with my senator. (laughs) And we just use the normal English copula. Mm -hmm. Mm Uh-huh. Ancient Egyptian, in all of its periods, was obsessed with distinguishing adverbial-like predicates from other kinds of predicates. Uh So it uses a different verb for either "I am there" or "I am in the store." Was different from "I am a doctor." Oh, okay. Um, And then the other thing is um, attributive, prepositional, or adpositional phrases. English is very loosey-goosey about this, and we can say the man on the moon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe if you're a generativist, you might argue about whiz deletion, and you say, oh, this is really shorthand for the man who is on the moon. Mm -hmm. But the point is, a lot of European languages let you use adpositional phrases to modify other nouns. Some languages do not like this at all and require you to link an adpositional phrase to its noun with some overt syntax.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: Like how would you say the man and the moon in Chinese? It would be, you know, something some the moon the on the moon the man. Yeah, yeah, yeah you have you have, have the article which is used to yeah.
1: which is... Anyway, the Anyway.
2: Yeah. The point is Especially for English speakers, it will be very easy to accidentally fall into the trap of just reproducing this syntax mm-hmm. uh-huh. but just be on the lookout when you have adpositional phrases as a predicate, not a predicate, excuse me, as an attribute of another noun, you might have to come up with something else uh-huh. and we will have we will be seeing something else in fact, in the uh, the the featured conline today, I think would mm-hmm. probably. I don't think he addresses this issue, but I'm guessing he would use the funky H thing.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the funky H thing, very well put. <laughs> right.
2: Um, And then I just wanted to mention, we already talked about how in, in Mandarin, zai can mm. be used to indicate progressive, yes. um, progressive aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have
1: – well, just in general, Chinese uh, prepositions are often also verbs – and also adverbs or auxiliary verbs, sorts of stuff. Sure. Yeah, it's, I, I just it's very to, fuzzy,
2: right? I just wanted to mention the, the the fact that other languages have decided to use um, adpositions to do the same thing. All of the Celtic languages mm-hmm. are happy to use adpositions with verbal nouns to mark aspect. Okay. And you sometimes hear this in strong variants strongly Irishized or Celticized variants of English will use I am, you know, at going to the store or things like that, or I'm on going to the store. I forget. (laughs) Which is used when they're speaking English. But there's several of these adpositions are used with verbal nouns to encode aspect. I think upon going means that you're about to go, for
1: example. Okay.
2: In Welsh, I am forgetting these. Uh, one of them has this. I am sorry, I can't recall it offhand. But again, kind of like possibly- in English,
1: I think a uh, going at at one point was like at going yeah, or something.
2: Right. right, that that might be the same thing. I forget the details of that. But I just wanted to mention that it's not just Mandarin that's done this, but even Celtic languages have decided to use appositions to encode other things in the language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, like aspect.
1: Well, um. Both of you guys, is there any more stuff that you guys want to say about ad positions in general? Any other little things that you thought of?
0: Yeah, uh, I, well, two things I wanted to mention. One, um, is feel free to, I know in natural languages like English, sometimes, um, what you're trying to say can be ambiguous in the sense of exactly what semantics or if what case you're trying to encode. Like if you say, I saw the man with the telescope, do you mean you saw the te- man using the telescope or you saw the man who had a telescope with him?
1: Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's an important point. I think that's one thing that we haven't mentioned so far is that, um, uh, ad positions often have lots of different sort of meanings if you try to put a dictionary definition to them and those i think when i was learning uh foreign languages one of the biggest things that i saw having very different sort of semantic fields was the prepositions probably because they're so much like a grammatical thing
2: right i agree I, i always find these very hard and when i did esl tutoring the difference between in and on mm-hmm. drove one of my students just not quite to tears, but it made her very crabby.
1: Yeah, it it it, it is a little uh difficult if you have a language that doesn't distinguish them. Yeah,
2: oh, right. Yes, she, so she was an, uh, an Algerian speaking French.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, then, right? Who? Right? And I mean, I, I remember French prepositions being a nightmare, and they're often highly idiomatic, which is certainly sort of what you're saying. In a good dictionary with a preposition or postposition heavy language, you're going to have lots of entries with these. Certainly lots of items in my Navajo dictionary are verb plus adposition having a particular, not necessarily predictable meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just as much as English I put up with does not, <laughs> does not, does not mean the sum of its parts. Uh-huh.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's like a giant phrasal verb, basically.
2: Right and and this gives you an opportunity also for if you enjoy creating subtleties in your lexicon adpositions are a great way to to add to that richness
0: yeah okay um, um. so uh, that was the one thing i wanted to mention and then the second thing that i wanted to mention was that uh i was thinking about using maybe when we were mentioning uh, those three things towards from and location um i don't know if there are any languages that do this but perhaps you could use different um different techniques to distinguish some from the others. I was thinking of using pre prepositions for maybe location and then postpositions for using movement. And I don't know if that's common. Um I had it where that the um if it was location it would be after the verb and if it was for movement it would be before the verb so that uh po- that apposition would be kind of linking them. But I mean just you can feel free to mix it up especially when you're constructing a language that's as free as something that you're You know, creating from your brain, um, you're not stuck in a box.
1: Uh, I could see that happening actually. Um, if you're, if you are doing a naturalistic language, I don't Mm -hmm. know if you're, if you're, you do that as much as we do, Mike, but Mm -hmm. if you're doing a naturalistic language, you could take advantage of what, uh, William was saying about, um, adpositions derived from nouns having different syntax sometimes. Yeah. So you could have like a preposition heavy language and then have all your location prepositions be just regular prepositions that have been there for a long time. And then it just happens that most of the motion ones are derived from nouns or probably actually vice versa. Because yeah, I was, just, I was probably, just thinking probably, mm-hmm. yeah. the locations probably more likely to be derived from nouns and those just happen to be post vision because they just happen to, to end up there. Mm-hmm. that could, uh, i think basically that could be your hist- your historical conceit for that system occurring is yeah. that it because one of those happened to be mostly noun der- derived then they happen to end up in the opposite position for most pe- uh ad position yeah um if nobody has anything else to to add here i think um we can wrap this up i we don't have any like nice papers or anything that we're linking to, but I did I am linking to some walls chapters so that people can get an idea of how common some of these different things dealing with ad um ad positions are and if and uh going on, I think we're going can we move on to our featured conlang then
0: Sure yeah, I think that's fine.
1: Okay, I'm going to try to pronounce this once. <laughs> uh, we should
0: all try. See who gets the right. This is <laughs> a very
1: difficult to pronounce blank name for a language. Um, it's called Yunnan Shu. I didn't get the the, the 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 second vowel right, but that's fine. Uh, this was created by a uh, uh, a uh, listener to the show, Bryn Follette and. This was the, his response to our, uh, our homework assignment that we gave in episode 35. Uh, the
2: appalling donkey beating story that George concocted.
1: Yes. And as a test of, of how you deal with all these transitivity issues without case. We've got, we got a few different submissions, but I wanted to highlight this one and William actually suggested we do it as a featured con like because What he gave us was a nicely formatted PDF of a full grammatical sketch of the language. And, you know, so much work went into this one that we really have to sort of break down the stuff. Here's what he wrote in his email. He said, Hey guys, here's my try at a caseless conlang exercise. Sorry it's a little late in coming, but I was busy the last few weeks and I'm only now catching up with the podcast. Well, that was many weeks ago when he sent that. But anyway, it's been a good many years since I sketched out more than a phoneme inventory for a conline. So I apologize for it being a little rough. Well, it's not really that rough to me. It's <laughs> pretty, it's pretty well thought out for just a one-off sketch in order to translate one, uh, story about a, a, a terrible person. <laughs> uh, one, one little fable here. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of interesting. As far as the assignment goes, the, the, the main thing is that he used a couple of techniques that we actually mentioned, I think. In that what he did was he used a lot of voice juggling in order to keep the, uh, the, the right thing in the focus, in focus on, on everything. Like he, And, uh, his translation of the story tries to keep the, uh, specifically the, 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 the horrible person that beats his donkey at the, as the, the most salient thing throughout. Right. And, uh, he uses proximate obviate in order to do the crucial distinction, um, between the, that donkey beater and his neighbor. Mm-hmm. Which, obviously, those are going to be at the same animacy. That's why I chose to have two, two dudes. <laughs> um, so, I don't know. That's the basics of, he has an inverse voice as well, which, which helps him out with that juggling. Um, and he has some, some animacy, a little bit of a, has, uh, some interesting animacy things. Uh, William, you were talking about a whole bunch of different, things that you were saying about this language
2: yeah um do we want to hit uh, do, we, do we want to do just our normal thing and hit some of the background the phonology a little bit before we start looking into um all of the things he did first to address the issue of assignment and then there are a few other things that are interesting just on their own yeah dramatically. Well, the, this
1: is this is it's not a quote unquote complete language, but it is a very detailed sketch. So yeah, I think I was just saying that up front so that people knew a little bit about yeah, what he did reminder. for the assignment. But let's talk a bit starting with phonology and some other interesting things about the language that may or may not relate to the assignment here.
2: Sure. Um it has a nice well, how would I say this? The phoneme inventory is pretty small and tidy. But he has some um, grammatical processes that lead to phono- phonological processes, which means the phonology is pretty robust. Yes. Almost doubled. Yeah. Um,
1: almost doubled
2: by phonological int-
1: alternations deriving from a single consonant. Yeah.
2: A preceding single h here. Yes. So um,
1: <laughs> that's some interesting stuff. The 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 base phoneme inventory is interesting in itself because it has um it has two implosives. It's not uh it's quite asymmetrical, but not Klingon crazy asymmetrical.
2: No, I think this is naturally asymmetrical, right? So we have labial, alveolar palatal velar and glottal, which only has H. There yeah, are it's no. Quite,
1: it's quite quite realistic, I think.
2: Yeah, there are no voiced stops that are normal. There are simply mm-hmm. two implosives. Mm-hmm. There's ba, and there's a palatal implosive that all three of us have difficulty saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. ba yeah. and da. 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 Yeah. I can't
1: do it. Yeah. Da. If you can say it right. Yeah. And also, as a, as a result of these alternations, both of those
2: can be aspirated. Well, that's mm-hmm. not true.
1: Oh is it not actually aspiration?
2: It's not no, a normal it h. Left. It simply confers breathy voice on the following vowel.
1: Ah, okay. <laughs> That's still a little confusing. He has all the normal plosives can be aspirated and then s can be aspirated or s and Son- then yeah. he can you can devoice nasals, which is fun. Well,
0: so- sonorants cuz the uh, liquid also can become devoiced.
1: Yeah, right. all, all all sonorants can be but I was mentioning nasals because you don't see a lot of conlangs with voiceless nasals, so.
0: Yes, I know. <laughs> I was thinking of using it just for that reason on one of mine way back in the day. Uh,
2: really, d- does... I would think anyone who's motivated by Sindarin might have them, because it's a feature of Welsh. Anyway, so he has this inventory of consonants, all of which can be... Afflicted with an H as part of a grammatical process and different things happen. You either get aspiration or breathy voice or voicelessness. Um, he has a five vowel system, but it's unlike any five vowel system I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, it's, it's completely
2: bizarre. It's like
1: he, it's like he took like one form of the square systems mm-hmm. and then threw in a central, a high central vowel. The E the mm-hmm. bar either, there. Yeah. Right,
2: so we have E, E, U, A, O. Now, yeah. I could see, and I'm just going by Japanese, I could see a historical situation where you had a five-vowel system with E, U, A, O, U, and then have, for some reason, God knows why, unrounding of your U giving you U. But anyway, um, To me, that's the hardest thing in this language is to get his, get his vowels right.
1: It's a very bizarre vowel system.
2: I don't know. It's very bizarre, but I have
1: a hard time with it. But Mm -hmm. I don't think it's too unusual. It's, I I don't know if it's, it's not unrealistic. It's interesting. It might be, it might be uncommon. Yeah. A very, (laughs) it would, it would be a very rare thing.
2: Unorthodox, Stephen. Yeah. Well, don't know about that, but, um, and then it has a two tone system. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, it does. Although the high tone, yeah, it occurs enough. All right. Um, and three diphthongs. Okay. One, one of which I can't pronounce. Um, so that's pretty. And, and a simple, um, word shapes and syllable shapes. So that's Ooh. fine. Um, he also allows, Sonorants to be a syllabic nucleus.
1: They're mm-hmm. very interesting,
2: um, mm-hmm. and can also take tone, although they're limited in the sort of syllables they can be in, which is again expected and usual. Um, before we get to the issue of keeping track of who's doing what to whom in a language without case marking, mm-hmm. um, he's got two grammatical things that are neat. We have the complementizer um which i would frankly see more as an attributive marker yeah and that and that's a suffixed h and that's the thing that causes mayhem on the following word
1: yeah it causes it actually kind of disappears and then
2: causes craziness on the following word right isn't it
0: yeah
2: apparently it can appear when the word is cl- when it's clause final, I don't know when that would happen. Huh. In any case, the word for house is na, And when you say my house, you have the word for I in the front with this H, which then disappears. Um, the word for I is um, tā. And so what you end up with is tā, na. Yes. Tā, na. Anyway. Um, I am not going to try to say The Man Who Sings because that involves a palatal <laughs> implosive followed by breathy voice.
0: <laughs> and, and don't forget rising tone. Well, I can do
2: rah-rah. So, rah-rah. Mm-hmm. Uh, dun, dun. It's it's very hard for me. It sounds funny. Yeah. Dun. Anyway. um, And then the other thing he does is he, he can nominalize verbs and phrases with a um, proclitic S. Mm-hmm. And what strikes me about this is that this is exactly the same pattern that's used in the Salish languages down to and including the sound S being used for this job. Yeah. So I don't know if he studied these languages or if he's just channeling the spirit of the Salish languages for some reason.
1: That's, that's an, in, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, I like that he used this. I think he used this to choose to, um, to, uh, figure out how to say, to translate the donkey beater. Right. Right. Because, um, I don't, I don't have his, uh, I just have the non He has, that is a horse-beating ba- man here, and it says, ko kakom kin. That's, that's difficult.
2: So, so we'll go easy. Uh, uh, kakom means to beat. Skakom means beating. Well, uh-huh. right. Um, well, it seems like, I think it's actually khakom.
0: The S, the S assimilates in uh, place of articula- or like, uh, if on page 14 it says khakom with a rather than a s. Oh, it's interesting. interesting. Really? See, the,
1: this, this, mm-hmm. this part, it was in, yeah. uh, I guess, uh, neke means horse. And so. Right. Uh, sneke kakom
2: is. Is right, beating. the clitic assimilates place of articulation. Yeah. All right. So, would that be sneke? No, that's already there. Sneke. Sneke. Oh, except it's e. Oh, sneke, 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 that's, Sorry, <laughs> snuku the, the point is, snuku means beating horses. like
1: e for the sound as the 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 letter e for that 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 e sound, but. But But obviously that was available
2: for him to use because he didn't have a or anything. So anyway, the the point I'm trying to make is the entire, an entire phrase can be nominalized this way. And he uses that to good effect, um, in, in this story. Mm -hmm. Um, he has a pretty tight, um, animacy hierarchy, which is neat because that runs into our issue Mm -hmm. for the assignment. um, One thing that was interesting to me is that inanimate nouns are avoided as the subjects of verbs, of transcript verbs.
1: Which doesn't figure into the assignment, but it's interesting that he thought of that. Yeah. Right.
0: It's very well thought out.
2: Yeah. Animate participants resist placement in the object syntactic position. When an animate participant is in a role that would normally place it in an O syntactic position, i.e. the patient of a transitive event, the argument will generally be shifted out of the O position to some other position of higher prominence. The higher the agency of the argument, the greater the pressure will be for the argument to be or co-referent, um, to be in or co-referent with the subject occupant. Um, this will even be the case if the object position is just a postpositional phrase with the high agency participant as its nominal head. And he's got various strategies to address this issue. Um, move it to the S position by use of the inverse marking, which George mentioned, or shunt it off to topic or focus position. And again, here's another piece of careful thinking. Um, things that are topics are unambiguously definite. Again, very common. But thank you for mentioning that. Don't just tell us we have a topical. Say, hey, the topical has this, um, definiteness implication. Cause that's very common, but not all languages actually make that requirement.
1: And he has, and, uh, he does a very good thing for his word order in that he puts the topic at the front, focus at the back. That means they're in very
2: different positions.
1: It's not easy to confuse them.
2: Right. Uh, I don't know how common that is in natural languages. I'm so used to, because I care most deeply about topic and focus constructions in ancient Greek. I've read a lot about that in Hungarian, which follow similar patterns. Um, so I don't, it just seems a little bit weird to me to have topic on one end and focus way at the other. I
0: I had a question about that. I'm sorry to interrupt though. Go ahead. Um, I was asking George before the show, um, that it was really, I, I thought it kind of just felt really weird to have them separated like that. Um, are there any instances you can think of where they well, are were, separate was, like
1: that? You were asking about just the the fact of topic and focus being separate things, right?
0: Oh, well, yeah. The Coming from that question is that usually I figure they both are in the same uh, reference to to the SOV or SVO, and in which case you can either just you know say, oh, the topic and focus are over there. You don't have to actually separate them apart and say this is this, this is that. And if you omit one or one, wasn't, one isn't there – it doesn't, um, have, it's not overtly shown or it's not, you know, confusing. Um, so that's why I was asking
1: about yeah. that. William, what do you think about that? I'm, I'm trying to suss through it in my
2: mind here. Yeah. I, I think maybe one could make an argument that Latin follows a pattern quite like this. In fact, a, a lot like this, except for the animancy dancing, which Latin is, is less worried about uh, or worries about in different ways, rather. Um, so I guess this isn't, on reflection quite as strange as i thought
1: but topic and focus we should uh we should mention that topic and focus it's sort of language dependent what they are but they are often different things in this one topic is unambiguously definite and i think topics usually are something that's been mentioned before in the discourse whereas focus is often used to introduce
2: something new New or especially weird or salient or requiring special attention somehow. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this in which episode was that where we did the whole topic focus dance? Quote unquote F- emphasis episode, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. We certainly talked there.
1: So yeah, the, they're, they're different things and you can have them in similar positions or in completely different positions, I guess. But I don't know in a language with very little morphology. I think it might be helpful in this case that he has them in opposite positions on the sentence Um, particularly focus being on the other side of the verb from everything else so it's very you know it's very marked the position
2: of it right right well those are your choices for focus mention it right off the bat or finish off your message with that I mean English puts focus last typically Um, but we don't naturally topicalize very readily in, English. in any case, I mean, I'm, I'm just mentioning that, that these are various tricks he uses to meet these requirements for not having highly animate entities um, be the direct object of a verb. Um, he's got his pronouns, which are also part of a hierarchy, and as George mentioned, that includes a proximate and obviative, or obviate pronoun, which is neat, who's most salient, who's less salient, um, and then he has an additional third pronoun, which is very low agency or inanimate, um, which doesn't make that yeah, sort my, of distinction.
1: The the thing that made what I was most interested in Proximate obviate, is how he actually used it in the translation, because basically throughout the translation, I think I mentioned this at the top of I- introducing this language, he kept the the donkey beating man at the center of the discourse. He was usually uh in a topic position. He was uh, he also used inverse voice a couple times to keep him at the front. And then so he was always proximate and any of the other characters were always obvious throughout the story. So he was he sort of twisted the discourse to make sure that he could distinguish the donkey beating man
2: from his neighbor. Yep. And I mean, because I can. I'm calling this language the the language William can't pronounce. <laughs> um, but to see this most clearly in action, download the thing and look at sentences eleven and twelve. Mm-hmm. That time he didn't say anything at all. Well, who the hell is he? Well, we know who he is. It's the obutive. So it's the man who's trying to teach his neighbor a lesson. And then mm-hmm. sentence. Uh huh. That's it's the neighbor. Yeah. Right. It's the neighbor. And then sentence twelve. In his gloss, he gave the translation, our main character was seized and beaten but with a heavy the, club. But
1: in the actual translation, he just used the proximate.
2: So, it's... He used the proximate and an inverse because he needed to avoid him being a direct object role.
1: Kermul, tul,
2: kun, whatever. Yes. Yeah. Bah, boo, kakum, tul, Anyway, um so he does that good. Among the interesting things for the verbs, because he does, he has very little uh, morphology as we normally understand it. Um, He has a bunch of these particles to indicate things like perfect, irrealist, potential. He has a mirative sentence particle. Yeah, I wasn't sure what that was. Mirative is used to mark something that's surprising. Oh, okay. Things like, (laughs) Your daughter plays piano so well.
1: Oh, and this, he actually used this in the story. It's, um, I think he used it to, to note that it was surprising that the neighbor started beating the donkey beating man.
2: Right. But here's something interesting. If you look on page 11, he's done something very interesting. If you mark a verb with irialis and the mirative, that's the future tense. That's very fascinating. Verb plus irrealis plus hortative plus mirative. Expresses necessity.
1: I love this kind of thing that where where things like mood, like things and like where moods and other things end up being glommed together for completely
2: different meanings. Right
0: now, um, one more quick question. What's, what? What? Uh, remind me. What is hoardative?
2: Yeah. Let's go dancing. Uh, suggestion. Yeah.
1: Well, it's sort of it's it's a mood that is. Sort of like an imperative for the, 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 for the group, including the speaker. So like Spanish bamanos is like a hortative.
0: So it is just like let's in.
2: Yeah. Um, so he has a long list of these auxiliaries. The most interesting one, because I hadn't noticed this until just now, and it relates beautifully to the topic of the day. Uh, is the inceptive auxiliary verb. Meaning, you know, you're starting to do something or you're about, you know, getting into a state, possibly related to adposition into. So, mm. first of all, it, you know, it's an invented languages, but he's described it as though, you know, we're a, an uncertain philologist about the origin of this. But he's related it to an adposition, which I thought was nifty. Mm.
1: So, I don't know. any. I'm going to um, – uh, this guy has given us permission to publish this ourselves. So I'm going to be linking to our, um, to the, uh, translation exercise and people can look at this PDF themselves. I think it's a very good thing for people to look at. Like, especially if you're not wanting to page through a giant long, uh, grammar like we had for Novogradian and stuff. This is a, a fairly short thing that still covers a lot of the bases here. So, um, yeah, Yeah. as this can be sort of, uh, if you're, if you're not, if you don't have time to, or not up to reading a big full grammar, this little sketch here, it's about 20 pages. Um, well, um, and, uh, has a good amount of stuff
2: in it. Um, it does lots of tasty, delicious stuff for people who want to step away from Indo-European.
1: Yeah. Land. For it even has a little bit of a dictionary attached to it.
2: The dictionary is fun because you see things that he never mentions in the grammar. For example, it sure looks like um, reduplication is yeah. a real process uh-huh. in this language. Mm-hmm. Um, we have several bits of vocabulary. So, um, ra means sound or sounds, or to make a sound, but ra-ra means to sing.
0: Yeah. That's Which, also in, uh, mo'i, mo'i and Momoi, a scream right. versus two scream.
2: Right, right, right. So, uh, there's, I mean, even though the vocabulary is a whopping four pages, not quite four pages, there's little interesting yeah, decisions not. that went on there.
1: Again, he was making this for us just to translate that one story, but he went sort of above and beyond in giving us all this information.
0: Yeah. One other fascinating thing I found saw on the glossary was that, um well, I, I'm probably gonna butcher it, but it has that uh implosive voiced palatal uh consonant there. But I guess g is to go, and that same uh I guess syllable appears in the verbs to give, to sell and to reply. So it's I think it's really nifty to see that connection yeah, that, with that direction um, motion
1: verb. Did
2: he derive those from g he sure did because so mm-hmm. he has uh, emo. Oh God, emo, Gimo is related to the word for ask, which is just maw. Yeah, so to give
0: ask is to reply, and to give to give buy is to sell uh, to sell, and to give receive um, to give receive is to to give for or real to go <laughs> receive rather to go yeah, receive. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go.
1: I. Mm, that's interesting.
2: Yeah. So yeah, no, just so these little. Even in this short space, there's lots of little,
1: little tricks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he has the, uh, I guess this is a, this is a post position E that's all sorts of, it's, uh, he, he has glosses to at until up to. And basically it's, he says it's, it can be a goal or a locative, basically, marker. Sure. Um, yep. Yeah. So. I don't know if there's anything else we can say about this except say, uh, please look at this grammar sketch because we think it
2: was really well done. And yeah. look at the example. I mean, there, there's no point for us to simply, you know, pick apart each individual sentence and Butcher the pronunciation. Maybe he could provide us a rec- recording of some part of the story. Yeah. Um, um, but we don't. There's no need for this because I mean the syntax is quite a bit different from English, and, and it would just be easier, frankly, for people to go look and and see the the little things he did.
1: Yeah, you you can look through. He has full interliterary gloss, of course, for his translation, which is very uh, positive. That's one. One reason I didn't uh, really go through everybody else's submissions because a lot of people just gave me big block of text, and I'm like, I don't know what you did. Uh, so yeah. this is, I don't know. Uh,
0: one thing I do want to also say, if there are any people who are new to linguistics or not very familiar with terms, it may be a little bit more heavy to read because there are terms like, you know, complementizer, clitic, um, and I'm not sure what different levels of Listeners or people coming to look at this, there will be. But um, just I uh, want to highlight that so you don't look at this and at the first page you're like, oh my gosh, I'm lost. Um,
1: yeah, and our feedback today is 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 from somebody who might be a little bit lost in some of this terminology, uh, based on what other things he doesn't know. So um, we I know we do have listeners who are beginners. I say still look at it and see see what you can puzzle out from it, um, but Definitely, it's a good example of how to at least how to structure a grammar, too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, even though it's just a sketch, it's a sketch that's half as long as my whole thing on Ayurio. So I'm not gonna say anything <laughs> bad about it. Um, uh, can we move on to feedback then? Since sure. So we got a question from Matt from Oklahoma. I love that, that we now have our, we just got an email from somebody who does the, the name from state thing. That's funny. I like but that. But anyway, he says, <laughs> question. I am new to the whole Conlang concept. I've been a podcast subscriber since week one when I read about it on the Conlang mailing list. I've been lurking on the subject for years at this point, but I, still haven't started. Your podcast is the first place I have heard about IPA. I've downloaded the chart from Wikipedia. Is there some way to make sense of it? I mean, if IPA is somewhat necessary for others to understand what you're doing, I have no formal linguistics training. Any help with IPA would be appreciated. Okay, so I am going to link... Um, there are several... Um, sites that do this, but I'm going to link to one site that has basically uh, an IPA chart where you click on it and it has sound samples. And that might help you a, a little bit. Um, I can't, I don't think we can really explain to you everything about IPA. Uh, we, we also almost have to do a whole other episode with the, a topic on articulatory phonetics, which, I don't know if we really want to do that as a topic. If anybody can help this guy
2: um with. Well, I think I think there are a few things we can say. Yeah. The IPA chart is sort of like the periodic table of elements mm-hmm. in that the location of a phoneme in that chart tells you things about it. Yeah. So as you move from left to right, you move from your lips down to the back of your throat and even further down into like your epiglottis.
0: Yeah.
2: Where English sounds do not normally happen. Mm-hmm. And then from top to bottom tells you the manner of articulation. How are, I mean, where is the sound happening and what exactly are you doing to make the noise? So. That might help you a little bit in sort of just thinking about why it's laid out this way. And yeah. these days, most conlangers lay out the sound systems of their language in this layout, even if they don't label the rows and the columns.
1: Yeah, and so it is very important to familiarize familiar to size yourself with the the layout. And that's what, what William was talking about is what I was expl- uh, talking about with your... This is sort of an articulatory phonetics type deal. Is that, yeah, it's place and then manner of articulation. And I'm sure we can find, we can probably find some, um, we, we probably need to find some, uh, resources that have explanations of the different manners of articulation. Because, yeah, I mean, I, c- we could sort of sit here and explain, um, what they are. It would be kind of,
2: yeah. Well, we don't I don't think we need it. I think a good start is Wikipedia is really good mm-hmm. about giving you the, uh, we can include this once I find it is they have a page of here's English mapped to IPA by, by dialect. Mm-hmm. So if you know what dialect you what of English you speak, you can go and you can look and then you can start to match these crazy symbols to sounds you're used to and then as you get further into this lovely hobby, you can start to map those symbols to sounds maybe that are not in your native language.
0: Yeah, one thing I was gonna um mention is that, you know, you don't have to when you first look at it, there are a lot of symbols on there that aren't in very many languages. Um like very few languages have like the implosives or clicks or uh or creaky a bilabial voice. Trill. Bilabial trill, uh lateral fricative. I mean, you know, there. are Lots of the sounds are not necessarily um, infrequent use. And I think that maybe just looking at, like you said, looking at one for English or if you're familiar with another language like Spanish, looking at that and just sort of figuring in your brain, okay, this symbol means this sound. Uh, I know linguists, or at least myself and a couple of my friends, we had a couple times we were sitting around just making funny noises that we were trying to pronounce what that symbol was. And someone walked by and they're like, What are you doing? And we're like, We're practicing. And we were all just like, and, and it was fun.
1: If you, if you speak Spanish and read Spanish and you find a chart that also includes the orthography, that would be helpful because, uh, Spanish orthography is very transparent as to how it relates to the phonemes. Um, there's other languages that you, that, that would, that would have the same trick. Okay. There we go. William has the link to English IPA here. And, but yeah, in general, I'm gonna say, yeah, look, keep, look through Wikipedia, not just on that page, but on like the w- page that William has. Look at the pages for, if, if you are having trouble with any particular concept, look at the pages for that particular concept, you know, fricative. Approximate whatever, because they'll have more in depth uh explanations
0: another thing uh is you may you could look on youtube i'm sure there are videos about the international phonetic alphabet, which is what i p a stands for in case you didn't know um and I'm sure that it you know you could there are more there that you could wag a stick at. And, you know, someone might show the symbol and then be like, this is and show the theta or this is and show the ev, or whatever the case may be. Some of
1: those, I I might, uh, see if I can look for those. Cause you know, on YouTube, uh, you might be able to find somebody who has even like the, the mid sagittal view of the head and everything so that you can tell exactly what, uh, what tongue position each symbol is supposed to represent.
0: And I've heard of, um, I've 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 been on a site before. I forget which one it was now, but um, for I think it was a speech pathology class. But anyways, there was a website where it explained to you how to pronounce, like say, the interdental fricative. And it said, place your tongue between your teeth, and exhale, producing a sound between the teeth and lips, uh, between the teeth and tongue. And I sit there going, oh, that's th. But you, when you hear the sound, you you know. Hopefully, um, you'll be able to hear that you've heard it before, or maybe you'll hear something you've never heard before and want to incorporate it and um, use it in a novel and new way.
1: I think for this guy, he just – I don't know how much else he knows about linguistics, but he just needs to familiarize himself with the symbols so that he can use them in transcriptions to show other people what his language is doing.
2: Right. 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 No, the only point, I mean, there's no there's no special virtue about IPA, except that it lets you communicate with people who might want to look at your language exactly or as exactly as you can expect um, in, in 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 human mouth capabilities. No. Mm-hmm. Let them let everyone know exactly what it is your language will sound. Yeah.
1: Like. Ultimately, there's no the only reason that you want to learn IPA is that it is. The sort of accepted standard for transcribing, uh, and there's other standards like Xsample or stuff, mm-hmm. but this is the most accepted standard for transcribing the sounds of your language.
0: Yeah, I was just about to ask about that. Have you guys um, used Xsample before?
2: These days, it's so easy to get access to Unicode fonts that do IPA that... Mm-hmm. There's probably not too much reason to use Exampa anymore.
1: I used Exampa for the first few years that I was conlanging and involved in the forums. But, yeah, like William, I say I don't use it that much. And I have trouble reading Exampa anymore, really.
2: Yeah, so the Exampa is just a way to... So, right, you've, you've got this Wikipedia IPA chart full of all of these ridiculous symbols... How on earth do you type them in email when you only have seven-bit ASCII? Oh, so X ex, XAMPA is just a way to encode the full IPA chart just using characters available on your boring American keyboard.
1: By the way, I'm going to put another link in the show notes specifically to help people type things. The uh the IPA
2: keyboard, such a great tool. Yeah, Ooh, I'll have to look at that. Yeah.
1: If anyway, you just Google IPA keyboard, you'll find it. But that's, it, basically, you just click the, the thing that you want, and it goes into a text box, and you can copy-paste.
2: Okay.
1: Uh, so, there's even solutions to help you type them if you don't want to bother changing your keyboard. So, basically, what we're saying is, um, IPA is just a standard that linguists use and that a lot of conlangers are using and it will help you uh to tell other people how the phonology of your language works it's just stuff that you have to memorize but yeah the chart is laid out in such a way to help you figure out what position the the various articulators in your mouth have to be what position in the mouth thing has to be and what the manner of articulate the 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 manner of articulation is whether it's a, a stop, a ta, or a fricative sha, or an approximate ra.
0: And um, I, w- I want to interject, there are some uh, different terms that are used for the same thing, like stop versus, um, you know, plosive versus yeah. um, lots of different, like glides versus semi-vowels, I think some call it.
1: I think if he explores Wikipedia enough, he will start to learn those.
0: Yeah. yeah. Long story short, I said, be not afraid, you know, Godspeed. It's just,
1: yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's no problem. Everybody ends, uh, ends up when they're starting having to learn all these new terms and have to memorize the IPA and all this stuff. It's just sort of dumb,
2: dumb, busy work that you have to do in order to get into this hobby because it's hardly unique to this hobby. If you take up model trains, you take up bone you take up a- Orchid growing. All of them have a vast vocabulary that you have to figure out. Yeah,
1: any any of them, you have to new, learn new terms. It just mm-hmm. happens that these are also uh, scientific linguistic terms. Um yeah. I think we can wrap this up. We, we we've we've probably given this guy enough help <laughs> that he can more than he enough. Can, yeah. Yeah. Well, his name is Matt. Um,
0: in Oklahoma, from Oklahoma.
1: Oh, Matt from Oklahoma. Yes. Uh, I, I hope that you continue con- conlining, langing, Matt, and I hope we, we help you make sense of the
2: IPA as you, you put it. Um, well, to start making sense of the IPA. Yeah, well, to start, yes. yes.
1: Um, um, I might send an email to Deconstructed Construction since they're, they're newbie focused. Maybe they can, they can put up yeah. some tutorials. Um, yeah. but, uh, I'm going to, say age for beauty here William do you have any final words of wisdom <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> no I just got a Dan Everett's new book language a cognitive tool so maybe when I'm finished with that I'll have some wisdom from there oh mm-hmm. nice
1: okay mm-hmm. and uh, Mike well I'd say um
0: as far as for the beginners you know the people who are just starting with this wonderful wonderful hobby um you know, don't be afraid to try things And even if you don't know what they're called Or if you're just starting and you feel a little overwhelmed be, Don't be afraid, all of us started from somewhere And, uh You know, if you try something that's really crazy And off the wall, it could be, you know, someone looks at that And say, oh wow, that's really neat, I never thought of that Uh-huh So, um, with, with anything, with, uh Conjugations, with, uh Morphology, with the phonetics, with Clicks, with whatever you can think of Um, some, you know I'd just say, uh Go nuts and feel free to explore and roam free. Enjoy.
1: Okay. And I'm going to say happy Conlang. You have been listening to Langry. You can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangry.com, including links to our featured Conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic. You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers to our Twitter facebook and google plus pages and a whole lot more questions comments and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com you can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header please see the contribute page for details thanks for listening I used to do scripts, but I realized <laughs> later that I was not very good at it.
0: You mentioned it like as a drug. Oh, uh, yeah, I used to do scripts. <laughs> <laughs>